Hello, this is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315. Today I interview Christian apologist and philosopher Paul Copan. This is my second interview with Paul. The first covered a number of different topics for apologists, but today's interview will focus on his recent book release entitled, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. I hope to explore just a few of the many questions that Paul covers in this extremely useful book. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. Glad to be with you, Brian. Thank you. Well, I've enjoyed all of the books that I've read of yours, but I must say that this one in particular could be one of the weightiest in the subject matter. I mean, it covers the emotionally charged issues that surround the quote-unquote God of the Old Testament, and you're looking at the moral and the ethical questions that are raised by these various historical narratives in the Old Testament. Why don't you, Paul, if you could, just describe briefly what your overall goal is in writing this book. My goal in writing this book is to basically, one, address the very emotion-laden charges that are leveled by the new atheists like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, uh, they are particularly, you know, many of them are directed toward the, quote, Old Testament God. Uh, these new atheists uh, delight in talking about God as being a, uh, you know, misogynistic, filicidal, uh, homoph- you know, homophobic, uh, etc. Uh, deity. And so they say, well, if that's the kind of God that we are, that, you know, that the Bible is talking about, well, uh, so much the worse for the Bible. Uh, we're not going to have anything to do with that deity. And so they uh, you know, really are not very clear on the uh, on the arguments that they are launching, actually. Uh, they are very quick to quote little snippets of the Bible, but they have not actually looked at the broader context. And so that's why I'm trying to address this whole issue of the uh, the new atheists uh, you know, and, and the kind of claims that they are making because they are simply unjustified, but yet they're sweeping uh, the country. You know, in, in fact, internationally, they're making an impact on the uh, on the scene with their best-selling books. And so what I'm trying to do is say, well, hold on a minute. These new atheists are making a lot of charges, but they're not substantiated. So my, my goal is to, again, uh, address the these new atheists and the emotional arguments that they're using and, and to bring clarity to the issues because these new atheists really are not very well informed about the issues of, you know, say, the slavery or servitude in the Old Testament or the uh, the treatment of women uh, about even the the issue of Yahweh wars or these uh, wars that God commands uh, there's a lot more nuance than the new than the new atheists allow uh, than the new atheists proclaim and so I'm trying to bring clarity to these issues so I, I hope that it will not only address the new atheists but also I think just treat more generally uh, the problem that many people have had over 
over the centuries with regard to these Old Testament ethical issues. And, and, and I hope that uh, people will see that not only does the background of the Old Testament uh, give us great information about how to interpret the text, but also as we look more closely at the biblical text itself, we see that uh, that we have not been reading it as carefully as we should have. And I'm, I'm basically responding to uh, many of the Sunday school versions uh, or interpretations of reading the Old Testament. Well, you know, just first impressions from my initial scan of your book, and I've gone through it once, uh, but I thought, wow, this is so dense, and you're covering so much ground in this. And, uh, it, you know, I think about how it's so easy for the skeptic or the atheist to raise a soundbite objection, but if if we're honest and we're looking at some of these questions, you really need to delve in and do some serious study if you really want to understand it. And so... In your opinion, do you think that these Old Testament issues raised by uh, the likes of the new atheists are some of the toughest questions that Christians will have to answer? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Uh, The issues that are raised by the new atheists are really the the sort of things that have been raised by people in general settings uh, your your general uh, you know you know not only skeptic but even people in the pew are wondering you know is this really you know you know should i read this when it says that leave nothing alive that breathes uh, is that really what the text means so these are the sorts of questions that are raised in general and so uh, in a sense i'm going beyond the new atheists i'm actually using a lot of their quotations as my chapter headings but uh, but what I'm trying to do more generally is to help Christians think through uh, the issues in the Old Testament scriptures uh, and also to try to bring clarity for a, a, a non-Christian audience as well as they are looking at the Old Testament text and, and, and maybe scratching their heads and wondering, you know, is this really what the Old Testament text is saying? Uh, so I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to address some of those things. So I wanted to be, be clear on that. But um, so so anyway many many people beyond the new atheists themselves are asking these questions uh, but i will say that there are some tough questions that are raised and it's important for us to to process them and to think through them and to read the bible in a broader context i i you know and we'll talk about this later but i guess the the issue of the killing of the canaanites is one that is perhaps the most emotionally weighted question one that raises some of the tougher uh, ethical issues Uh, And as I have said, if we look at the picture more clearly, we'll see that what is often assumed behind the that is behind the question, uh, uh, you know, of the say the new atheist uh, is not really at all what is going on uh, in the was not really going on in the ancient Near East, uh, you know, as far as Israel was concerned. So in in some, I would say there are some tough questions, and it doesn't mean that all everything is going to be resolved. But I think in in what I'm trying to do in the book, I think it goes along way to resolving uh, a lot of those issues and in a sense takes the the sting uh, or and, and the misunderstanding that comes from that you know that produces that sting uh, you know out of the you know out of the objection uh, so that we can look more clearly at what the Old Testament text is saying yeah well Paul in the course of our interview I, I want to look at a number of different questions and, and see if you can offer sort of a encapsulation of some of the ideas dealing with some of these ones you've you've dealt with. 
could you just, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, if they're looking at, you know, answering some of these questions, so catch out briefly what you think are some of the more substantial ethical questions that have been raised about the Old Testament. I know you mentioned the Canaanite issue, but what other ones come to the forefront? Well, in the book that I'm trying to deal with, uh, these objections uh, that come up for, you know, in, a, in a more broad way, I, I look for, for, for in the first part, uh, or the, actually the second part, but toward the beginning of the book, I look at God's character, and I try to deal with uh, a God who demands worship. Does this seem like a petty deity uh, who is doing this? Is God warranted in calling us to worship him? Doesn't this seem like God is insecure, uh, that God is arrogant, perhaps? Uh, and then, of course, there's a question of jealousy. Uh, how could a good God be jealous? Uh, and so I try to unpack what jealousy is. There's a good version and there's a bad version. Uh, there's a positive way of understanding jealousy, a moral way of understanding jealousy, and then there's a way of understanding jealousy uh, that, of course, we all uh, dismiss as being morally problematic. Uh, and then I deal with the other, another aspect of God's character, namely uh, a God who commands, say, the killing or the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, he tells Abraham to take his one and only son, his son whom he loves, uh, to sacrifice him. Uh, and, of course, uh, people go ballistic on that. Uh, how could a good God command that sort of a thing? Uh, so that's basically the first part where I'm dealing with the objections, trying to address the, the character of God. And then I look at uh, life in the ancient Near East and in Israel, and I, and I look at uh, first just kind of give a general sketch of how to approach the Old Testament scriptures, that a lot of the things that we see in the Old Testament are ne not necessarily being endorsed as ideal, uh, but yet the new atheists will say, you know, so we're supposed to believe that this is you know, God's ideal for all people and all at all times. And my argument is, no, that's not the case. Uh, there is actually a lot of nuance here. And, uh, and so it's unfair to just say that this is what is expected of, uh, for God's people uh, for all time. After all, Jesus himself in Matthew 19.8 said that, he, that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. It wasn't because of the, uh, you know, that this was the ideal that God was saying should be for all time, but rather it was something that was permitted given human weakness, human hard-heartedness, human sin. Uh, and then I go in to look at some of the, uh, you know, some of the strange, uh, you know, sounding laws, the, maybe the kosher laws, uh, some of the, uh, purity laws, and, uh, try to make sense out of those. I, I look at some of the, uh, some of the harsh laws in the Old Testament as well. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, are there, are, are these punishments, for example, that are permitted? Is that, uh, is that something that, uh, that a, a good God would permit or command? Uh, and then I look at the, the treatment of women in the Old Testament, is that unfair? You know, you've got polygamy, you've got concubinage. Uh, are women uh, treated in a, in a disfavored sort of way? And then what about slavery? Uh, a lot of a lot of alarm bells go off when you hear the term slavery, uh, and I argue that the slavery that uh, that comes to mind uh, in, in, to the to the modern ear uh, is when when the when the when the, when the modern hears it uh, is basically completely different from what you see going on in Old Testament Israel, and so I try to bring clarity to what servitude is and isn't in the scriptures. And then I look at the issue, the, probably the most weighty issue, and I spend four chapters on the topic uh, of the, you know, the killing of the Canaanite, 
said the question, does religion cause violence? And so I look at, you know, give a more nuanced understanding of what is taking place in the, uh, amongst the uh, Canaanites and you know, when Israel is committed to, uh, to, to bring judgment, uh, you know, militarily. Uh, what does that mean? What does it not mean? How extensive is it? Uh, is it limited? And so I unpack some of those things. And then toward the end of the book, uh, I, I talk about the, the very issue of morality and God. Can we have goodness? Uh, can we have human dignity and worth if God does not exist? And I argue, no, we can't. If you get rid of God, then you're actually opening up a, you know, a lot more problems uh, for, uh, for accounting for human dignity and worth. Uh, and then I, in the last chapter, I basically talk about how uh, if you say that the Christian faith is, you know, say the source of all kinds of ills, I'll say you haven't looked at history. Uh, you, yes, there are people who abuse, uh, have abused the Christian faith or the name of Jesus, but that, uh, but when, when, G, when the Christian faith is lived out consistently, you see a remarkable transformation that takes place, uh, not only in human hearts and personal lives, uh, but indeed across civilizations. And so I talk about the, the remarkable track record that the Christian faith has in terms of bringing about remarkable changes, humanizing changes uh, throughout uh, you know, various civilizations and across history. Well, let's go ahead and unpack a few of those. Now, the first thing for me that you know that comes to mind is that uh, the skeptic or the questioner is often going to say something along the lines of, you know, the Old Testament God is mean and vengeful and nasty, but the New Testament God is nice and loving. So how do you explain that? How do you respond to this claim that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is, is this mean God? Well, a couple of things. First, the mention of loving kindness, compassion, grace, and so forth, is those mentions are far more numerous in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Uh, that it's simply an unfair uh, statement to say that the God of the Old Testament is nasty and the, the God of the New Testament is nice. The God of the Old Testament is nasty. The God of the New Testament is nice. Uh, what we have is actually you see both a God, you know, you see both judgment and grace in the Old Testament. You see judgment and grace in the New Testament. In fact, when you go to the book of Revelation, you see Jesus himself, you know, this Jesus who said, turn the other cheek, uh, this Jesus who said, love your enemies. Uh, he also was a, you know, he is also one who talked about judgment. Uh, that when people refuse to repent, then God has to cordon off evil, that God must deal with it, that God simply cannot allow the unrepentant to come into his kingdom. Uh, and so if people, uh, C.S. Lewis said, is, you know, the door of hell is closed from the inside, uh, well, if that's the case, then God is going to have to cordon that off. And so God gives people the opportunity to say yes to him or to say no to him. Uh, again, C.S. Lewis said, uh, in the end, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, uh, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And in this, you know, in, in this scenario, in the book of Revelation, this, this is exactly what is played out. Uh, Jesus coming on this white horse, uh, again, symbolizing victory and also bringing judgment uh, to those who are, who are living in rebellion against him and his kingdom. So you see that there is, you know, you see both emphases in both testaments of uh, the kindness of God as well as the severity of God. Uh, you see both grace and also uh, the need for repentance when there is no repentance. 
repentance, then judgment falls. Uh, and you see both of those themes played out in both Testaments, and I think that it is, that is a, a proper moral picture, uh, that when there is no repentance, when there is no regard for, uh, for taking seriously one's own sin and the need to repent before God, then what recourse does God have except to bring judgment? Well, as you mentioned a few moments ago, one of the accusations that comes up against the God of the Old Testament is that he's prideful. And so where's that objection coming from? Is it really possible for God to be proud? Well, I think that the matter of definitions is going to be important here. Uh, What do we mean by pride? What do we mean by humility? I think pride is not to deny say, ability, the ability to play piano, uh, you know, so, or, or, you know, if someone is uh, excellent at soccer, football, uh, you know, if someone is excellent at playing piano or violin, uh, that person is going to be out of touch with reality if he says, well, no, I can't really play the piano, I really can't play the violin. No, that's a denial of reality. That's not what humility is. Humility is a proper acknowledgement of one's own weaknesses, yes, one's own sin, yes, uh, but also it's a humble, you know, it's a, it's a gratitude uh, for one's own gifts that God has given to that person. So it's not as though I take credit for my gift and say, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good stuff. No, uh, the what the proper attitude is to say that this gift has come from uh, from God, and it does not come from myself. I can't take credit for it. And so that is the way to look at humility, a, a realistic assessment of oneself. Pride is an overblown view of oneself. Uh, pride is, uh, in a sense, uh, going on a, uh, you know, on a, a, uh, and a, a false advertising campaign for oneself. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, that is not what you see going on with God. God is, after all, the creator of the universe. He's the one who has made us in his image. He's made us for a relationship with himself. Uh, if God is to, uh, you, know, you know, God, if God is to deny the claim that we have upon him, then God would be out of touch with reality. Uh, if God were not worthy of worship, but yet he would call people to worship him, then that would be problematic. That would be pride, uh, and uh, and and it would be wrong. But in the case of God, uh, the, the, the true and living God, when he calls us to worship him, it is precisely because he is worship worthy, not because he isn't. And so that is, you know, I think we just need to come to terms with what we are, what we are talking about. We need to define our categories. And I think when we have a proper understanding of what we mean by humility and what we mean by pride, we see that God is actually a humble being. Uh, in fact, you read the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. You see, God is one who stoops down, one who condescends, uh, one who you know. God is the like the the Father who has compassion on His children. Uh, God is the one who, even though He dwells in a high and exalted place, He also dwell, dwells with the contrite and the lowly. Uh, we see in the person of Jesus Christ that God steps into the human situation. That God, uh, you know, He does not grasp the the you know grasp onto the prerogatives that He has being divine, uh, but Jesus. Jesus, you know, the Son of God, steps into our world, though being equal with God, uh, takes the form of a slave, uh, dies the death of a slave, a humiliating death, um, but yet, as a result, is highly exalted uh, and is, receives a name above all names. So you see a God who, you know, Jesus himself says that even though he is the one who is the uh, revealer of the Father, 
the unique revealer of the Father in Matthew 11. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, you know, you know, learn from me, for I am you know, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So here you have this lofty claim being made by Jesus about you know, you know, that, that he is the, the unique revealer of the Father. And then he goes on to say that he is also humble of heart. So greatness and humility uh, need not go together, uh, need, not, need not be opposed to each other. They can go together. Uh, and you see that, uh, I think, wonderfully exemplified, say, in that passage in Matthew chapter 11. Well, excellent. Right along the lines of this pride accusation is the idea that, as you said before, that God is jealous. And, in fact, talk show host Oprah Winfrey recalls a time when she heard a verse from the Bible about God being a jealous God, and she just couldn't accept that. So what's the Bible mean when it talks about God being jealous? Well, as I hinted at earlier, we all know that there is a bad jealousy, uh, the jealousy that is petty, that uh, is uh, insecure, uh, when someone is uh, jealous uh, you know, just even a, a you know, just two friends who enjoy hanging out together, and then uh, any if that that one of those friends starts talking with anyone outside of that that friendship, then that you know that person you know one of the other person gets jealous and upset and, and is insecure. Well, that that's problematic uh, when you've got that clinging uh, kind of you know, kind of jealousy that does not allow any other genuine appropriate friendship uh, to uh, to enter in uh, to the other person's life. That is, that's one thing. On the other, when you, when you see, say, a, you know, married man and woman, and then there is, say, a, a guy who starts flirting with this man's wife, well, it is appropriate that that man be jealous and be protective and be guarding that relationship. Uh, there's nothing, uh, you know, there's nothing, you know, nothing inappropriate at all with his being protective and jealous for the exclusivity of that relationship. In fact, we'd say that there's something desperately wrong if he doesn't care that there's there may be something infringing upon their marriage relationship, something uh, needling uh, you know, itself into that relationship and uh, and 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 be, uh, being a third party in that relationship. There's something deeply problematic. Marriage, by definition, uh, is going to be exclusivistic, and anything that cuts into that uh, ought to be uh, ought to be rejected. You know, there ought to be a protection uh, to preserve the, that unique bond between husband and wife. And so what you see going on in the scriptures is a God who, yes, is a jealous God, but when you read about why God is jealous, that term comes up regularly in the context of idolatry, where God makes a bond, a covenant with his people, and it is seen as a uh, like a marriage relationship, uh, a husband and wife. And when Israel, rather than trusting in this covenant-making God, runs after other deities of other nations, makes political alliances with them, trusts in the strength of these foreign nations and their armies, rather than trusting in the God who has made this covenant with them, God gets jealous. God made promises that he would be their protector, he would be their provider, he would be the one who would defend them. And when Israel was running off after these other gods, it aroused God's anger. It provoked his jealousy. Uh, and there's something utterly fitting about that because God was so attached himself to Israel. And when you look at, say, Mount Sinai, when God makes a covenant with Israel, uh, and, uh, and, and Israel agrees to be the people of God 
to be his bride. And then just a few chapters later, uh, in Exodus 34, uh, Exodus 32, Israel, you know, worships, you know, uh, you know this golden calf uh, and provokes God's jealousy. So it's like here they just had the marriage and then on their honeymoon, uh, Israel's already cheating. Uh, on their their uh, you know on the on the husband and so that's the kind of you know i think that when people like richard dawkins uh you know, trivializes uh, marriage by saying look you know what kind of a petty deity is that who gets jealous well he just has not understand had has not understood the depths of feeling that god has that he's so committed and connected to his people in this you know, marriage like relationship that uh, it's you know one has to wonder what Dawkins himself actually thinks about marriage and how exclusivistic that is, how it ought to be guarded and protected. I just think Dawkins hasn't taken seriously at all uh, the image of marriage and adultery, uh, and thus you know the whole issue of jealousy, which rightly comes up when there is adultery. Uh, and so, so I I would want the term to jealousy to be understood in that proper context, not the petty, insecure kind, but rather the one that is morally justified when something is cutting into a marriage relationship. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on then and talk about some more of these ethical questions in the Old Testament. And you know, one that comes to the forefront, as you mentioned, is is Abraham being commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, on an altar. And so the critical say, well, this is promoting child sacrifice at worst, and this is divine child abuse at, at best. So a lot of the things that you've talked about already, they're answered well just by looking at the larger narrative. And I think the larger scope answers a lot of the questions in this. But what other sorts of keys will help Christians to look at this issue of of Abraham being commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac. You're, you're right to point out that when we look at the broader historical narrative, it brings a lot more clarity to the point under discussion. Uh, when we look at Genesis 22 and the text of God's command, where God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, we need to understand that God's already been talking to Abraham. Uh, we go back to Genesis chapter 12. God tells Abraham to, you know, to get up, to go uh, to a land that he's going to show them. God promises that he is going to make his name great, that uh, through Abraham and his offspring, uh, blessing is going to come to all the families of the earth. So that is the beginning point, God speaking to Abraham. And then we see that God uh, provides for Abraham as well as his family. Uh, and when Ishmael comes along, Abraham's thinking, getting, getting impatient. Of course, it is a long time to wait. But Abraham, uh, you know, you know, he and, and Sarah, uh, con- conspire to, uh, and, and get ahead of God. Uh, by, and then, of course, Ishmael, uh, comes out of this, uh, relationship between Hagar and Abraham, uh, again, uh, being, being initiated by, by Sarah herself. And so Ishmael is born, and, and of course, Abraham's hoping that this is going to be the promised child. You know, let, you know, let Ishmael, you know, live before the Lord. Let him be the promised child. And God says, no, this, uh, the offspring is going to come, the, the promised child is going to come from you and Sarah, from both your bodies. Uh, it's not going to be through Ishmael. 
God tells Abraham in the midst of the squabble that uh, Hagar and Sarah are having. Uh, God tells Abraham to just let uh, let Hagar and Ishmael go and that God is going to provide for them. Ishmael is going to be great, uh, become great. Uh, He's not going to die in the wilderness. And so Abraham can let them go, knowing that God is going to take care of them, even they're going into the dangers of the wilderness. Well, that is the part of the context that prepares us now for Genesis 22, where God is basically saying, Abraham, remember that I promised that, you know, through the offspring of you, you know, your offspring, as well as uh, Sarah's uh, together, that the, the nations of the earth would be blessed. Uh, and do you remember how I cared for Ishmael uh, and uh, and Hagar when I told you to send them off into the wilderness? Uh, well, you need, you need to remember that, as I tell you now, that uh, you are to sacrifice your son Isaac. And so Abraham gets up knowing somehow that God is going to fulfill his promise. Uh, and so that's why he tells his servants, you know, when, when they're asking him, uh, or when he's just giving them instructions, he, say, he tells them, you know, we are going to sacrifice, or we're going to worship, and we will return. Abraham was so confident that God was going to bring Isaac back. Even though he didn't know how it was going to happen, Isaac is going to be the one who is, you know, he's this promised child, and God is going to somehow fulfill his promise, even if God doesn't know how that's going to happen. So it's not as though some sort of a thought just came to Abraham saying, kill your son Isaac. No, there had been a uh, there had been a uh, discussion, there had been a narrative, there had been a historical context for all of this to take place. And Abraham, uh, you know, Hebrews 11 uh, later later speaks of how Abraham was confident that God would raise the dead. And so I think it's important for us to remember, some people say, well, how can you believe in a God who commands the killing of, uh, of, of say, uh, uh, you know, a son? Well, it's important for us to remember that we have, you know, the, the world operates according to certain rules and that we have certain things that are in place. But as uh, the philosopher John Hare says, you know, think, for example, if, uh, if when, uh, you know, if at age 16, if children, you know, or a 16 year old had this capacity to, uh, come right back to life after being killed, would not would that not make a big difference in terms of the the bigger moral picture? So you know if you kill someone and the person says, "Hey, I'm going to be back soon anyway. See you see you in a minute." Uh, you know that person's going to pop right back to, into place. Well, then the the you know the idea of killing that person isn't really that big a deal because that person can pop right back uh, to life. Well, think about that additional moral fact. Uh, you know, or that additional fact that that enhances the moral picture uh, when we are talking about God's promise to Abraham with regard to Isaac. It, you know, in, in some ways, it's it's similar. You know, God has given a promise, and God just knows somehow Isaac is going to accompany him back. He just doesn't know how it's going to happen. So there is this confidence that God has that he, God is going to be faithful to His promise that He's not going to let Abraham down now after all that He's done. And I think that when we look at it in this vein, in this light, we start to see a clearer moral picture here of what is going on. And so I, I, I unpack a lot of these themes in the chapter that I spend on this particular topic, but I hope that that gives a few uh, nuggets that might be helpful uh, as, we, uh, as we think through that particular topic. Well, that's, that's good, Paul. I'm fairly satisfied with that sort of an answer, but at the same time, I can't help but hear you know, the voice of the skeptic chiming in my head saying you know, an objection along the lines of, 
all right, well, what's to stop you from saying, you know, God told me to murder this person or God told me to do, to do that or, you know, you, now you have the voice of God telling you to do, basically do whatever immoral thing that you can think of. So what kind of answer would you have to the skeptic who's going to raise that sort of objection of, uh, you know, what's to stop God from ordering fill-in-the-blank? Well, we need to understand that God is a good a good God, uh, that God's character is such that he is worship-worthy. And when there are some things that we may not perhaps understand, uh, you know, but, you know, but, you know, like, for example, you know, the God's command to, to, you know, for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, we also need to remember that God has already, in a sense, given a sufficient basis of moral clarity that God is going to be one who fulfills his promise and that there may be some things that may be difficult or hard for us, uh, you know, that, uh, that may be, pro- you know, that may be trying for us, um, but yet still God who sees the bigger picture, uh, is going to bring about the fulfillment of his purposes and that what may seem to be uh, difficult for us, uh, when you look at the bigger picture, uh, we see, no, this is not some sort of, uh, you know, in a moral act. Uh, you know, and I, I like to use the example and uh, the example of, uh, say, uh, you know, someone, you know, Mark Murphy uses this example of a father. You know, he talked about this happening in his own home. He's a philosopher at Georgetown. Talked about how uh, one time he, his son, had a, uh, a tooth that was coming out, and so his, uh, you know, when he said to his fa- his family that he was going to be pulling out the tooth of his uh, of his, I don't know, whatever, you know, six seven year old child, uh, the the younger three year old son was just horrified and literally ran up to his father and started beating him, telling him no. He said no, and his father said no. I'm going to get some pliers or something to try to get this tooth out, and the child, the young the young child, just could not understand how this he could this father could be so brutal uh, and and torment his uh, you know what are six or seven year old child like this and i think that a lot of times when you know when when we look at our own you know when we have our own moral framework uh you know we may be we may be a little bit uh, unclear about certain moral facts uh, that are that are part of the bigger picture and i'm arguing that god in general does not command uh you know these these sorts of things that you know like uh you know you know kill someone uh, i'd say the the burden uh, of proof would have to be on on uh, on someone that uh, that that would have to show that this is indeed uh coming from god abraham i think had plenty of warrant to say this is coming from god this is not just some you know that i had uh maybe too much to drink last night uh or maybe i i've uh you know, I'm I'm taking drugs and therefore uh, I may not be in the right frame of mind. You know, that's a, a different scenario. Uh, on the other hand, what we have are certain moral features, uh, moral facts that have a bearing on the kind of actions that are being carried out. And Abraham is one who has a clearer moral picture. God has been, uh, you know, at work here. God has been interacting with Abraham. And so what we see here is not some sort of a random act uh, that comes out of the blue. Uh, but rather, this is a, you know, again, a, a principled command that comes, that God is one who is commanding, but God has already made a promise that certain things are going to come about. And I'd say that the sorts of scenarios that are offered by the skeptics are not going to fit that kind of a, a, a criterion. They're not going to uh, have that kind of reinforcement that God, a good God, is indeed behind all of this. 
so I, I guess the burden of proof would have to be on the skeptic to say why he thinks that you know that God would just command any old thing uh, at any old time and uh, and and that therefore it be justifiable. No, there has to there's going to be a specific context in which God has made Himself known, that God shows Himself to be trustworthy, uh, that God is going to fulfill His promise, and I, I dare say that the skeptic doesn't have that to his advantage. So you would say that all the scriptural examples we have, there's there's a uh, proper context, there's reason to trust and and have warrant that you know God is actually speaking to you, and the and the things that might normally be thought of as immoral, God has given sufficient reason to show that He's got a plan and a purpose, and it's not an arbitrary, out of the blue sort of immoral command out of nowhere. Exactly right. That's a very nice summary. Well, you also look in to the Old Testament, and, the, and you rev- you look at some of the laws in particular, dealing with the kosher foods you mentioned, holiness laws, food, clothing, planting regulations. And then the question, I guess, is, you know, what kind of principles do we use when we look at laws that apply to Old Testament Israel? Why aren't they for us today? There's a, a lot to unpack there. Let me say a little bit about, uh, say, some of the maybe the food laws and planting regulations, clothing laws, and so forth. God, when he is commanding the Israelites as they're going into the land of promise, he is telling them that he wants them to be unique, set apart, uh, living in a life, in a, in a way that is dedicated to God and and not imitating the nations that surround them. God is telling them that he wants them to be reminded in whatever they are wearing, in the kind of food that they're eating, uh, in their planting, uh, even in their, uh, you know, the way that they go about having sexual relations as husband and wife, uh, that there is a way to do things. And in these everyday, seemingly mundane aspects of life, they are to be reminded that this that they are the people of God, that they are to live lives that are distinct from the nations around them, uh, that they are to live uh, for this God who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so because of that grace that they have received, they are to live lives of gratitude uh, and, and adherence to the, the laws that God has given to them. Uh, again, I think that these laws do serve as a daily reminder in every facet of life that they are the distinct people of God, and that, uh, you know, and, and as Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, that they are to be distinctive among the nations, and that as the nations look at them, the nations will see that this is a wise people. Uh, look at what kind of a great God they have by the way that they are living their lives. Uh, so all of these, you know, mundane things would be reminders that they are the unique people of God. Now, we talk about the kosher foods, uh, and, uh, you know, that, um, you know, and I, one of the things that I say in the book is that uh, a food is not kosher if it somehow does, is not characteristic of the three realms uh, that typically that typify the various uh, various animals. Uh, for example, the birds of the air, uh, the fish of the sea, the uh, you know the land animals. That if something that seemed to overlap in spheres or seemed to be abnormal, then it was prohibited. So, for example, you know a fish that has you know fish you know typically have fins, uh, scales. Well, if you have you know if you have something like an eel. You know, it doesn't have fins or scales, uh, you know, or you have, uh, you know, you have, or sorry, you know, yeah, or you have, for example, uh, shrimp, 
uh, you know, that, that seem to be, you know, different, uh, from the, the way that fish typically move through the sea, uh, or you have, uh, you know, you have catfish or something like that, or, uh, you know, shark or porpoise or whatever, uh, you know, these are not to be eaten. Why? Because they don't quite, they're not characterized by what the, you know, the majority of, uh, you know, fish are, what is typical of the, you know, of what passes through the sea, uh, namely that which has fins and scales, and so it is to be avoided. And so I argue that the sorts of things that, in a sense, break out of their sphere are not, not characteristic of their sphere. Um, God prohibits those things from being eaten. And uh, why? It's to, to remind the people of God that they are to be people who are to, do it, in a sense, to uh, thrive in their own sphere of being God's unique, set-apart people. So I unpack a lot of these themes. There are other uh, nuances that I talk about when it comes to kosher foods. For example, you know, you don't eat predatory animals because that's a, you know, like vultures or eagles or whatever, um, you know, that, that, that prey upon the vulnerable. Uh, that is not to be characteristic of the people of God. So I, I, I talk about those sorts of things as well. Uh, in terms of the harsh laws, uh, I won't say much about that, but let me just say this, that in terms of uh, those, you know, what, what some people say, well, look at those harsh punishments. It seems like that was really a, a, you know, a rough way of living back then. Uh, what I argue is that, uh, that the Israelite laws, it, by comparison to the rest of the ancient Near East, are actually much milder, much less you know, it really, I mean, the, the the laws of the surrounding nations were often very brutal. Uh, there could be punishments, for example, of a of a of a criminal being dragged through a field by uh, by oxen uh, because of his punishment. If if a builder builds a house and uh, and it, uh, it, it 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 collapses, then that person, that builder's family, is vulnerable. They, you know, the the wife, for example, could be put to death. Uh, you know, if if there is someone who commits adultery, then the you know then that man's uh, wife uh, could be raped and so forth. So a lot of you know punishments that are that are totally you know brutal and uh, and 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 inappropriate. When we look at the when we look at the biblical record, we see something that is much more uh, you know in a sense tame, uh, much less brutal, much less harsh. Uh, and, and so what, what you see, though, is God meeting his people where they are, uh, that, uh, yes, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like trying to bring uh, democracy to a place like Saudi Arabia, uh, that God works in an incremental sort of way. Uh, you don't bring sudden change dramatically uh, to a place where there are fallen uh, social and moral structures in society. Uh, what you do is you bring change incrementally, and that's the sort of thing that we see God doing with regard to Israel. Uh, it's not the ideal. In fact, Jesus himself says you know, that certain things were permitted in the Old Testament uh, because of the hardness of human hearts, uh, uh, Matthew 19.8. Uh, so certain things are permitted, but they're not to be construed necessarily as ideal, and yet this is where a lot of the new atheists uh, get it wrong. They 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 assume that oh that Old Testament that must be for all people and all times, and the New Testament as well as the Old Testament uh, says that no this is a temp- something temporary. It's going to give way to something better, uh, but yet the new atheists don't uh, don't allow for that uh, that to enter into the discussion. Uh, so anyway, I unpack a number of those things. I won't get into that right now, but hopefully that's enough to perhaps whet the appetite for looking into. Uh, the book in greater detail. Yeah, well, I found those particular sections there when you're explaining the reasons behind these laws that 
are peculiar, the kosher food laws, and wow, this is really fascinating. There's there's really good reasons behind what was done, so I think it's really beneficial to read. Now, earlier when we were talking about pride and jealousy, we saw that the under, our understanding of those terms kind of can give us a wrong idea of what the Bible is talking about when when we're defining humility or jealousy, but one of the other things that you talk about and um, you mentioned there was slavery in the Old Testament. And you also explain how our understanding of slavery is much different than the Old Testament understanding of slavery and how it was culturally distinctive uh, during that time period where it was more of a servanthood system. So could you kind of explain your approach to the slavery issue in the Old Testament? One of the points that I make in the book and try to hit it, uh, make it very strongly, uh, is that many people, when they hear the term slavery, and I think that that's uh, an unfortunate uh, translation in the Old Testament, because something like servitude, uh, something like uh, you know even you know employer-employee with a certain twist, uh, is a better way of understanding what's going on. Uh, you know that a lot of people, when they see slavery, they think automatically of the antebellum South. Uh, they think of the horrific abuses of the sla- you know of the slavery system uh, in the uh, in, in the modern period, and so that that is an unfortunate association. And so the new atheists, boy, they just wreak havoc on this. They just they just make all all sorts of claims that assume that equ- that equation when that is totally not at all the picture. Again, what we're looking at is the uh, the servitude in the Old Testament that is more like an indentured servitude, a contractual agreement that was limited in time, uh, that was entered into, get this, voluntarily. It's not something that comes about through kidnapping or something like that. It is when someone is poor... Uh, he has debts to pay, can't pay them, and so basically, you know, the, the, the biblical language is he sells himself uh, or parcels himself and his family out to get food, clothing, shelter, and employment in the home of someone else, but for a limited period of time. Uh, it, it's kind of like people who came over to the New World from, say, you know, England, uh, and they they uh, couldn't pay their way, but there was an agreement that they would work in the New World and pay off their debt, and after seven years, they would be free to go. Uh, and again, they would be perfectly, you know, they, they would be fully functioning citizens. They wouldn't be second-class citizens. They just had to work off their debt. And uh, we, we use that sort of a language, but that doesn't mean that, that they are property or something like that. Uh, there's just, they're just under contractual obligations or you know, there's a contractual agreement that they need to fulfill. And I argue in the book, too, that three Mosaic laws, if they were kept in place and obeyed, and followed by those who are Bible-reading uh, people in Europe and in North America, then slavery would not at all come about. For, you know, for, there are three key laws that I want to focus on. Uh, the first one is that there is an anti-kidnapping law in the Mosaic Law that it, one could not, you know, one could not steal another person. You know, the you know personal you know theft uh, that that was prohibited on pain of death. And so kidnapping was totally prohibited, but that's exactly how the modern slave trade movement came about. Uh, 
uh, through kidnapping, uh, you know, people from Africa often in cooperation with uh, tribal chieftains and so forth. But there was a, a kidnapping, a taking of people uh, away from their homes, away from their families, and uh, bringing them to an alien place. Uh, a second point is this: uh, that the that the law of Moses also had anti uh, had anti harm laws within it. That if a servant got his eye knocked out or his tooth knocked out, then that person would be able to go free. He was no longer, you know, to to live uh, in, indebted to this uh, to this uh, employer. He was to be able to go free. Now, if this anti-harm law were in place in the you know in, in you know in modern slavery, then again the uh, all, all those abuses that are typically associated with that uh, just would not have existed. Uh, a third point is this: that the the anti-return law that was in place in Israel distinguished itself, for one thing, from some of the other nations around it, like the Code of Hammurabi, which said that a person, if he harbored a runaway slave and didn't return him to his master, then he could be put to death. And and and, but in Israel. Israel was to actually give harbor, safe harbor, to runaway slaves, those who ran from their masters and looked for refuge in Israel. And so I argue that if these three laws were in place, uh, then the the you know there would have been no uh, you know again division between north and south. The, the slavery issue would not have arisen here in in, in the modern world because you know, again if those three mosaic uh, principles and laws were followed. Uh, now, I, I, there are some other some passages that I go into more detail on. Some people say, "Well, what about you know, Leviticus 25, or what about Deuteron- what about Exodus 21?" I unpack some of those things. I can't go into a lot of detail here, but I deal with them very specifically. Uh, I, I take tackle the three uh, most more difficult, the most difficult passages that are often raised when it comes to servitude in Israel, and I unpack those issues. and uh, And I think uh, the explanations that I give for them uh, really help to put things into perspective. Well, Paul, again, that's extremely helpful information. And so, again, I want to point people to your book. It's great. Why don't, I know we can't go in-depth on this next question, but if maybe you could offer a, a bit of a teaser and an overview, and then we'll just point people to the book. But you talk about the question of the Canaanites. In, in the book, you call this probably the most difficult challenge in the Old Testament. Why is that the most difficult, and what sort of overarching principles do you deal with when when you're looking at that issue? All right, let me give you a few bullet points here, if I may, and I'll try to offer a, a summary of uh, some of these uh, these issues. It's a difficult question because, of course, the uh, assumption is, boy, you know, people who are being one, uh, the Canaanites are being singled out. Uh, how can that be? Fair. It sounds like genocide, and I argue that no, it's not genocide. Uh, for one thing, it's not as though non-combatants are being targeted. I, I make that point very plainly. Uh, that the cities of Deuteronomy 20, the, the cities that are being targeted, Jericho, I, Hazor, and so forth, these are not actually where non-combatants live. Uh, that's where the political, religious, and military rulers live. These were citadels or military fortresses, and so that is, you know, so even 
though it says man and woman, young and old, and so forth, you know, that's really just kind of stereotypical language that doesn't really fit uh, the sort of scenario that is being talked about in these cities. It just means, you know, whoever is there, you know, deal with them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I also argue that the the, the category of uh, of you know of, of not lo- allowing anything alive to remain alive that breathes, that language is strong hyperbole. Uh, as you read the, not only Deuteronomy uh, chapter seven and twenty, but as you read into Joshua and Judges, you see that even though Joshua says he leaves alive nothing that breathes. You see lots of Canaanites that are hanging around. It says many of those Canaanites are there to this day. Uh, you know, Joshua couldn't, you know, you know, we read in Judges that they could not drive out the Jebusites and so forth. There are a lot of Canaanites still hanging around. In fact, this is exactly what archaeology tells us. Archaeology shows that there was no sudden, uh, you know, military rampage, you know, where everything was just, all the Canaanites were cleared out, where they were killed, and then the, the, the Israelites, uh, you know, had, had just swept through and taken over. No, it was actually what we see is a, a gradual uh, sort of process where th- where houses and, you know, and so forth are left pretty much intact, except for three cities that were burned, Hazor, Ai, or Ai, and, uh, and Jericho. Uh, everything else seems to be of re- to have remained intact, and it was, I argue that this is a gradual assimilation that archaeology bears out, uh, and that the scriptures themselves bear out. We see that this is kind of a, a slow process rather than something that is sudden and totally destructive. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting, too, that um, when we read about Joshua, who carries out all that Moses commanded, well, we see that you know Moses must not have commanded this to be take, carried out in a literal uh, you know sort of way because there are a lot of people who are alive who who are left alive uh, you know who had been breathing and you know a lot of Canaanites still hanging around. Uh, also, I think we need to remember that the primary language that is being used here is that of driving out or displacing rather than utterly destroying. And, uh, you know, and, and I want to go back to that point, too, that I made about the hyperbolic language that is being used. This is a common feature in ancient Near Eastern warfare rhetoric, that you could win by a narrow margin, but still be said to have uh, utterly decimated. You left alive nothing that breathed and so forth. That's the kind of language that you see in the ancient texts, in the, you know, in, again, in the extra biblical inscriptions and so forth. Uh, you see a lot of stuff uh, like that going on in the ancient Near East. In fact, the king of Moab writes, you know, that, you know, Israel is no more. Uh, well, you know, we know that Israel, you know, stuck, stood around and was a very prominent presence there, stuck around and was a very prominent presence there. Um, but, you know, so there was a lot of exaggeration that went on in this warfare rhetoric. Yes, the Israelites may have lost a battle to the king of Moab, but that doesn't at all mean that they were wiped out far from it. And so what I do is I, I'm trying to basically offer a non-Sunday school version, a much more nuanced version. I argue that non-combatants were not being targeted. Uh, well, I also argue that this was not genocide. That's kind of inflammatory language that the new atheists like to use. But the language of ethnic cleansing and genocide is actually far from the picture concerned about is uh, is idolatry, immorality, and that this would uh, you know affect the Israelite people. Uh, you know if, if if the so the issue is not uh, you know the issue is not are you a Canaanite or an Israelite, but rather uh, you know are you you know how are you living? Uh, and, and also whose God are you worshiping and, and you know what 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 falls what follows from that. And so the Israelites were also told 
that if they carry out the practices that the Canaanites did, you know, prostitution, you know, you know, temple prostitution, infant sacrifice, bestiality, all those things, then the same, you know, the same sort of threat that hung over the Canaanites would also come to them. In fact, they too were exiled. They too were displaced. Uh, and that indeed, so God wasn't playing favorites here. Uh, God was, but, but anyway, the, that's kind of a general summary of a lot more that I could say. I probably have gone over time here, uh, but hopefully some of those things will be helpful. Again, a lot more to unpack, uh, but hopefully the book uh, will will uh, help will help in, in in filling in those details. Well, it's great stuff, Paul, and all the content that you cover in the in the book it's substantial. And I'm sure it's going to be helpful though for those people who are honestly looking into understanding these issues more deeply. So I want to thank you again for taking the time to do the interview today. I appreciate it, Brian. Very good to be with you. I've been speaking with Christian philosopher and apologist Paul Copan about his newest book, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. I also would strongly recommend his other books, which will be linked at today's blog post at Apologetics 315. This is Brian Auten, and thanks for listening.